We're continuing on in Mark, and we're still in Mark 14. In Mark 14, we're going to be starting in verse 43. Uh, we're going to cover a large portion, but we're not going to work through uh, all the little details of this section. We're going to look through verse from 43 down to verse 65, which is part of the arrest um, and, and Jesus before the Sanhedrin. Before we get too far in, let's read uh, our passage. Mark 14, beginning in verse 43. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him safely away. As soon as he came, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. When they all forsook him, then they all forsook him and fled. Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young man laid, uh, young man laid, and the young men laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. And they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple and with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even then did their testimony agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst of and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. And the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Then some began to spit on him and, blind, and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, Prophesy! And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. As we go through this passage, there's a lot happening here. But what we need to recognize here is Jesus as our sinless Savior. And to recognize that, God wants us to recognize the selfishness of sin. Why do we need to recognize the selfishness of sin? Well, for two reasons. Because of human rebellion and of Jesus' sinlessness. 
So we're not going to look through this in, in major sections. We're going to look around at different topics. First, we're going to look at because of human rebellion. Because of human rebellion. We're going to start in verses 43 to 47. We won't reread those at the moment, but we'll start in verses 43 to 47. And we'll jump down a little bit further in the, in the account to pick up some other items here. So starting in verse 43, Mark continues the account from the time of prayer in Gethsemane right into the account of Jesus' arrest. Things seem to be happening very fast. At the end of verse 42, Jesus is telling the disciples, get up, the time is now, my, my betrayer is at hand. And in verse 43, while he was still speaking, Judas came with a multitude carrying swords and clubs. Things were happening very fast here. Mark uses his favorite word twice in three verses, immediately as Jesus was speaking, letting the eleven know Judas was arriving. Judas enters the garden with a crowd uh, then verse 44 is actually just kind of a narrative explanation. We can kind of, so if we skip, go from 43 to 45, we can see things happening closely together. So we could read 43 and 45 together to get the whole flow of the action. Immediately Jesus was speaking, and Judas entered at once or immediately. When Judas arrived, entered the garden, he went up to Jesus and gave him a kiss, likely on the cheek. Things are happening very quickly. Verse 44 is just there for the reader's information. Mark is just giving us a little information of why Judas is doing this. Now this kiss was typical of disciples to give their rabbis as a show of affection and respect. Often it was on the cheek or on the hand. Now, after Judas indicated Jesus was the target by the sign of the kiss, this kiss that was a show of affection that he turned into a sign of treachery and betrayal in this instance. But after he indicated Judas was, or Jesus was the target, some of the guards or Roman soldiers that were likely there seized Jesus to take him to the high priest. Now, Mark leaves, a, leaves this, this person, this disciple, unidentified. John outs him. John 18.10 identifies him as Peter. This Peter, this, this unidentified disciple here in Mark, drew his sword and attacks and strikes the ear of the servant of the high priest. John tells us the name of this man was Malchus. Now, whether Peter drew wildly and just clipped Malchus, whether he lunged and attacked and Malchus got in the way somehow, we don't know. Somehow, as Peter was attacking, he clipped the ear of Malchus. And the language actually makes it feel like it is just a part of the ear, not necessarily the whole thing. Now, Mark gives no further details of this incident. But Matthew and John include Jesus' rebuke for Peter and tells him to put the sword away. Luke likely indicates this, uh, this rebuke with the command, but, it also, but Luke also shows Jesus healing Malchus's ear. It's not clear how Peter was not arrested, whether he saw what he had done and ran we don't know. 
We don't know how he wasn't arrested trying to interfere with G the arrest of Jesus. But because of some slight scuffle in the dark, he wasn't identifiable as the attacker. Perhaps after Jesus healed Malchus's ear, Peter was able to get away, or it wasn't clear, or it was clear that it wasn't anything worth arresting him. Warren Wearsby says this, Peter used the wrong weapon at the wrong time for the wrong purpose with the wrong motive. Peter was wrong in that entire situation. But after Peter's ill-conceived defense of him, Jesus offers no resistance to being arrested, but slightly protests the way it is being done, as if that he were an insurrectionist instead of the well-known religious teacher that he was. But Jesus knew that what was happening was to fulfill the scriptures and the plan of redemption. During his arrest, the disciples and Judas ran off just as Jesus had said they would. Now, as we're coming down here, we kind of come to verses 51 and 52. These, these verses are unique to the, to the account in Mark. It's presumed that this young man, roughly 24 to 40 years old, that's what's being considered young, um, that it's presumed that this is John Mark, the author of, the, of this gospel account. It is thought that after the Passover, when Jesus and the eleven had left what was presumed to be John Mark's home, he had gone to bed. Judas had gathered the guards and returned to the house looking for Jesus because he knew he was there. Likely having been told that he wasn't there or having looked and haven't found him, Judas probably knew where he was going to go and they left. John Mark may have been informed by a servant of what had happened, wraps himself in a light linen cloth and tries to find and warn Jesus only to arrive too late. And as he begins to follow the crowd, he is nearly caught and the linen cloth comes off, leaving him to return home, quite possibly without a stitch of clothing on. In the moment of Jesus' arrest, in the moment, their grandiose claims, back in verse 31, their grandiose claims came to nothing as each of the eleven sought to save their own lives and deserted Jesus to the temple guards and to the Sanhedrin. Judas fled as he had begun to realize the treachery of his dealings with the chief priests. And a courageous young man intending to follow Jesus fled capture. Jesus was alone. Once in the home of the high priest, Jesus' trial began. The chief priests had been looking for someone to testify against Jesus about something that they could legally call for his death. But they couldn't find anyone whose testimony would work. And we've skipped down further uh, into verse 53 and, and following. Um, but they couldn't find anyone whose testimony would work. Many were there giving false testimonies. Possibly they were on call for just such an occasion. We don't know that for sure. But whatever it was, their accounts didn't agree. There was too much discrepancy. Their accounts didn't match. There had to be two to three witnesses giving consistent 
testimony before a guilty ver verdict could be given. Mark records that some were giving testimony about Jesus' comment concerning the destruction of the temple and the rebuilding in three days. This comment's found in John chapter 2, verse 19. Yet even these could not give consistent testimony. The Sanhedrin and the chief priests, most in particular, were, were so hateful of Jesus that they were seeking his death, that they were deceptive and treacherous in their dealings to arrest Jesus. They paid a close companion to betray him, that they were going to find Jesus guilty and keep an appearance of keeping the law. They're going to give an appearance of keeping the law. They brought false witnesses. They will incite the crowd nearly rioting before Pilate. And after they accuse Jesus of blasphemy, they mistreat him by striking him and spitting on him before they let the guards take him. That portion of them um, blindfolding him and slap, beating him, slapping him, spitting on him, asking for a prophecy, they, it was a common thought that such an occurrence the Messiah would be able to voice who was doing it. So this was a beginning of some mockery. Like, you say you're the Christ, fine. And they blindfold him, begin spitting on him, strike him. Who's striking you? Who did that? Prophesy. Judas's hypocrisy with the kiss, the whole betrayal. Peter's self-confidence and belief in his own strength, even anger to attack to approve his loyalty. The deceit of the witnesses giving false testimony, the deceit and hatred of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council. People with blinded eyes living in rebellion against the Lord. Their actions are the actions of sinners. Sinners selfish enough to believe everything they were doing was right and good. Sin is an offense to God, but sin is almost always selfish. We convince ourselves that it's okay, that it's good. But is it? Sin feeds our pride and makes us feel good, makes us feel important, feel loved. When offered by sin, it is counterfeit. Proverbs 16.25 says, there, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end, but its end is the way of death. God wants us to recognize the selfishness 
of sin because all humans, especially those who do not know Christ, are in rebellion against God. Somehow something got removed from my notes. Proverbs chapter 6. I don't think I'm ahead of myself. Proverbs chapter 6, beginning in verse 16. Considering what we just read and what we were just looking at, think about that as I read Proverbs 6, beginning in verse 16. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among the brethren. As I'm going through this section today, as I was prepping for today, that section kept coming to mind. False witnesses who speak lies. A proud look. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. And that line, hands that shed innocent blood. What does Judas say when he goes back to the chief priests in Matthew and says, this is not what I'm doing. Here, take the money back. I am guilty of innocent blood. I think he may have, he may have thought of this. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that are swift to running to evil. The work of the Sanhedrin and those men at that time give us an example of that section in Proverbs. So God wants us to recognize the selfishness of sin because all humans, especially those who do not know Christ, are in rebellion against God because of human rebellion. But the other way that we can recognize not only the selfishness of sin, but to recognize Jesus as a sinless Savior is because Jesus is sinless. So because of Jesus' sinlessness. And we're going to jump back up to verses 48 to 49. Go ahead and read these verses. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple, teaching, and you did not seize me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. When the group of soldiers and temple guards came to seize Jesus, he remarks about how, how they're doing it with a slight protest. We, I mentioned this earlier. He asked them why they came for him as if they were coming for a robber. Now, the word robber there can refer to a highwayman, a highway bandit, but can also mean a revolutionary or insurrectionist or guerrilla soldier. And either meaning is possible here. But having a combination of temple guards sent by the chief priests, likely carrying the clubs, and Roman soldiers likely showing up with the short swords, there seems to be more seems more probable to me that this is referring to the idea of the insurrectionist. He's going to cause problems. We need to to squell this revolution, quell, um, suppress this revolution before it gets 
too far. We need to arrest him. They also come for him at night, away from the crowds of the people. To this point, Jesus remarks that they had been, he had been in the temple complex day after day that entire week, or most of that week, teaching. If they wanted to arrest him, there was ample time and opportunity to do so in the light of day at the temple complex. But the chief priests and scribes, the Sadducees and Pharisees, were afraid of the people. Chapter 12, verse 12. They were seeking his death, but were fearful of the people, were afraid of the people. They were afraid of losing the popular affection, afraid of the people creating a riot. Despite Jesus' comment, despite all this, he still comments here, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. Opposite to what the sinfulness and the selfishness of the, Jew, of the religious leaders, of the mob of guards, even Peter's actions, Jesus didn't put himself first. He humbled himself to the Father's plan and will, and knowing the prophecies concerning his upcoming death, like Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, Jesus allowed himself to be arrested. Now jump down and look... Uh, jump down to verse 60 through 64. We're going to see more of the trial here. Here we, we uh, return to the trial before the Sanhedrin. Now after two of these witnesses testify about Jesus claiming to destroy the temple and rebuilding it, verse 58, the high priest, uh, John 18, tells us that it was Caiaphas. He comes to Jesus and asks if Jesus had an answer, a rebuttal, a response for these accusations. A response for these accusations concerning the temple. Up until now, before the Sanhedrin, Jesus had remained silent, not responding to any of the false testimony given against him. Now, Jesus still remained silent when asked this question. He didn't answer the question. Per for Jesus to remain silent was to indicate innocence. Jesus didn't need to respond to the false testimonies given because no charge had been sustained. No charge had been realized that would be able to hold up. Then the high priest asked him directly, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? He asked Jesus directly if he were the Messiah. Now the title, the Blessed, or Blessed One, is a Jewish substitute for the divine name. They don't want to say, uh, they don't want to say uh, the personal name Yahweh. They don't. They were even um, not saying God. They were just. It was just a substitute for saying God. Now many argue that no Jew would associate the Messiah with being the son of God because they expected a human Messiah, not a divine one. So placing these words in the mouth of the high priest seems to be the theology of Mark and of the early church and not what was actually said. But the phrase son of the blessed or even son of God could have been spoken by the priest 
as easily as son of David. A number of times in the Old Testament, we see that the kings of Israel were sometimes referred to as a, a son of God. 2 Samuel 7, 14, Psalm 2, 7, Psalm 89, 26, and 27. And all three of those passages have messianic overtones with them, emphases in them. Now, and as the Messiah was looked upon as a new king of David's line, this statement could easily be understood for its messianic implications instead of a divine within this context. But he still asked Jesus a direct question on his identity. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Jesus answers, and he answers very specifically. I am. Jesus answers with the divine name. He then further furthers the answer by telling the council that they will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, or the power, some will say the mighty one, and coming with the clouds of heaven. He states that these human judges will see him sitting exalted and in, a, in the, the place of high honor and authority at the right hand of God. The power, again, is another Jewish substitute title. Um, the power is the literal word that's there, but sometimes it's translated the mighty one. But they will see him seated at the right hand of God, and they will see him coming in judgment. Jesus' answer, this prediction that he's giving here, applies the words of Psalm 110 verse 1 and Daniel 7.13 to himself. Commenting on this prediction, one author says, the fact that they will see this did not mean Jesus would return in their lifetimes. Rather, it referred indirectly to bodily resurrection and judgment before the exalted Son of Man, who will one day judge those who were judging him. Then it will be unmistakably clear that he is God's anointed one, the Messiah. Following Jesus' statement, the claim of divinity, the claim of being the Messiah, Caiaphas tears his garments, likely the inner garment and not the official ceremonial robes. Now, the tearing of garments we see throughout Scripture was often a sign of grief or alarm. But the high priest would do this. It was actually, I believe, it was required of him to do this in Leviticus to do this as a reaction to blasphemy. It was required of him if he heard blasphemy. In his mind, Jesus' words dishonored God by claiming rights and powers that belong only to God. To be seated at the right hand of power, to be coming in the, in the clouds of heaven and judging, only God judges. The statement from Jesus was to the high priest, blasphemy and, and was self-incriminating. And it needed, and it removed the need of any other witnesses. 
It didn't matter that they had all these false witnesses anymore because none of their testimonies agreed. The two that somewhat agreed gave him an opening to question. But now from Jesus' own lips, there's self-incriminating evidence that requires no further witnesses because he said this in front of the whole council. You have 70 men there that will all say, he said and took rights that belong to God. The council condemned Jesus to death, thus needing to go to Pilate. In verses 48 to 49, Jesus showed his innocence and sinlessness by pointing out that he wasn't and hadn't done anything worthy of arrest. Or such, or to be arrested as, as such by an armed guard like this. The council, scheming to rid themselves of competition for the affection of the people and in fear of Roman intervention, acted dishonestly. In verses 60 to 64, Jesus continued to indicate his innocence by not answering the false witnesses, their false testimonies without a valid charge. Only when the high priest himself asked Jesus directly about his identity did Jesus reply. And of course, Jesus answered truthfully, confirming the claim of Messiah and indicating the divine nature of the Messiah and himself because Jesus is the second person of the Godhead, and we know God is truthful and cannot lie. Titus 2.1. Jesus answered with the truth. He was given a direct question concerning his identity, and he answered it truthfully because it is who he is. Jesus allowed himself to be arrested, misrepresented, lied about, falsely accused, condemned, and mistreated because he is sinless. God wants us to recognize the selfishness of sin because Jesus is, was, the only sinless human. Jesus was sinless because he is the God-man, God incarnate, God the Son in human form. His sinlessness allowed him to be the perfect sacrifice and payment for the sins of the world to appease God's wrath and justice. To recognize the selfishness of sin is to recognize Jesus as the sinless Savior. God wants us to recognize the selfishness of sin because of human rebellion, because of the human nature of sin, and because of Jesus's sinlessness. Once we recognize the selfish sinfulness of our own heart and the sinless nature of Jesus and the power of his death and resurrection, the only thing to do is to place one's faith in Jesus, on Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection for forgiveness of sins and salvation to eternal life. So I invite any here today who has not done that, not yet repented of their sins and sought forgiveness from God and placed their faith on Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection to do just that. You can do it now where you are seated. And speak to me after the service. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you.
for the time we were able to look into your word, to be reminded of the events surrounding Jesus' arrest, surrounding his betrayal, But even in, in looking at these events, we recognize the sinfulness of humanity. We recognize the sinlessness of Jesus. Help us, even as believers and disciples of you, to be mindful of our own uh, sinful tendencies and habits. Help us to forsake them, to turn to you in repentance, and continue to strive to be good disciples that we can continue to bear the image of Christ to the world. We thank you that Jesus is and was the sinless Savior, that his death and burial was the payment required and it was acceptable and accepted and that he was raised victorious. I pray for any of those here that have not yet professed Christ, who have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ, the work he did on the cross. I pray that they might do so even today. If not today, Father, I pray that your spirit would be at work in their lives, pricking their spirits, cause them to ask questions, and help us around them be able and willing to answer questions to point them to you. We praise you, we thank you, and we pray these things in the name of your Son, and our sinless Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.